Welcome to Journal Spotting. Trying to keep up with the medical literature, but England have just scored a goal against an average team in Euro 2020, and you just can't help singing three lines on a shirt over and over. Your ears are in the right place. This is a general medicine podcast that will bring you a monthly roundup of the top practice changing articles, along with specialist interviews, guidelines, and more. We scour the journal so you don't have to. We are the Journal Spotters. Bonjour mes petits journaux chouchou et bienvenue dans un autre spectacle de journaux random. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Bonjour Barney. I mean, what was that? You look and sound very, very relaxed. And very French, I hope as well. Are you going to share with us and the listeners why you're trying to deliver journal spotting and why you're butchering the language of romance? <laughs> John, you notice how, how, how well, you know, how kind of you. I, I, mate, I am on shared paternal leave in the south of France, soaking up sunshine, trying to stop my children from burning, drowning in the pool, or even worse, eating too much ice cream. I'm also failing miserably to um, speak any meaningful French. Definitely. Yes, yes. Um, but it's all with a heavy dose of soft, unpasteurized cheese and delicious wine. So um, so it's all good, really. John, I, uh, I think you've taken advantage of some relaxed UK-EU rules too. Is that right? Yeah, Barney, you're right. I have escaped to Switzerland to visit my family. Uh, sounds like I'm having a very similar experience to you, but with more Swiss rules and it's way too expensive. So, yeah oh right. mate switzerland beautiful but not not on an nhs salary but no, anyways no. enough about our travels through the amber list as we are here as usual to round up last month's medical articles you shouldn't have missed and we're really excited this month to be joined by a podcast superstar as medical podcast addicts for some time barney and i have had the rcp podcast series in our feeds for a number of years the episodes walk the tightrope of being both educational and entertaining and often cover some incredibly useful topics through case-based discussions. We highly recommend subscribing. Absolutely. And so today we are joined by the founder, host and RCP podcast legend, <laughs> <laughs> Giggles and Drumroll Please, Dr. <laughs> Amy Burbridge. <laughs> Amy, thank you for joining us. How are you doing? Oh, it's my absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me. Um, I'm really, really looking forward to getting involved in tonight's podcast recording. Thank you very much. Thank you for bearing with our terrible chat. Uh, you are an educator extraordinaire and a highly respected acute medicine consultant in Coventry. Amy, you've been heading up the RCP podcast since about 2018 and you're soon to be a uh, mother of five, is that right? Of course. <laughs> Um, yeah. incredibly busy at <laughs> yes. the moment yes that is um yeah god that's crazy when when I read it like that yeah so three of my own and two stepchildren so wow. my life is certainly very chaotic yes that is a that is a busy life Amy for the last year and a half I've been complaining about how busy I am having one and now two children I could only <laughs> imagine so listeners just so you know if you've watched the brilliant pandemic 2020 documentary on the BBC this April um, you would have seen Amy there talking both eloquently and candidly about the emotional impact of the early days of the pandemic and how she got through day to day. I mean, especially including after work team dancing to Proud Mary by Tina Turner. Nonetheless, it's Absolutely. a classic. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, Amy, really, again, as John said, fantastic to have you on the show. Uh, mind telling us a bit more about yourself and while, while you're at it, how about a, a sort of icebreaker or I suppose it's an ice melter. Why not tell us how you have been enjoying this current heat wave? Um, okay, where do I start? I think you've, to be fair, pretty much covered quite a lot about me. Um, as you've said, um, I'm a consultant in acute medicine in Coventry. I started the RCP um, Medicine Podcast in 2018, and I am a podcast obsessive, whether it be medical or true crime, or to be fair, I'll listen to anything. Um, podcasts have genuinely changed the way I learn and also educate. Thank you for bringing up Pandemic 2020. That was a very interesting time um, over the last 18 months. I thoroughly enjoyed being involved in it. And the last year has certainly exposed me to things I probably wouldn't have been exposed to. I am an obsessive gardener. My dream one day is to get Monty Don on a podcast <laughs> to talk about the medical benefits of gardening, because I really think oh, there right. is a niche area there that idea. we could. Yeah, I know. So Monty, idea. if you happen to be listening to yeah. the to this podcast or the RCP Medicine podcast, that'd be fab. Um, so what have I been doing? Well, I'm just about to go on maternity leave. Um, I'm just about to have my third baby. So I've been working from home, trying to avoid melting in the heat. Trying to do a bit of gardening, painting, preparing for this podcast tonight in my very old fashioned way of pen and paper. Um, these guys have put Brilliant. me to shame. They're so organized. I'm so <laughs> disorganized. Um, and tonight I've had a singing lesson as well, just to that. So, wow. um, yeah. Oh, One day I'll get wow. on. Uh... <laughs> I, so, I also si love musicals. <laughs> you're going to sing us the, the last article that you're doing, right? You're doing yes, it in song, absolutely. Right? Yeah, nice. And I'm going to I'm dance it, although I actually you won't be able to see that. Listeners, you're going to have <laughs> yes. to listen to the end now. That's it. We've got all singing and all dancing, Amy, um, at the end of the show. It's brilliant. Yeah, <laughs> why not? <laughs> Thank you. That's amazing. Um, all right, um, back to you, John. Want to want to run through what we are covering today? Yeah, so we have really packed it in this month. Um, first off, Amy is going to give us a bit of a masterclass in LP decision-making uh, in subarachnoid hemorrhage. Uh, then we're going to cover shorter TB treatments, very exciting, how nursing ratios might affect patient outcomes. We're going to talk about malaria vaccines, the cancer risks of CT scans, um, something called positional anemia, which I'm looking forward to hearing about, a little COVID zone update, including the recovery trial, uh, pregnancy and some steroids um, and loads more. So yeah, very exciting episode. There were so many potential articles um, to talk about this month, weren't there? I mean, we've really had to um, pick and choose, but uh, yeah, listeners, you're in for a treat. As always, folks, rate us on Apple Podcasts, follow us on Twitter and Instagrammy, send us your deepest emotional emojis on journalspotting at gmail.com or just click follow on Spotify and uh, soak up the phone med. All right. Now, Amy, your first ever journal spot and on your self-reported favourite topic, please indulge our listeners. Should we be LPing every single person who walks through the door with a new headache or maybe we should be a bit more um, thoughtful? Thoughtful. Cautious. Cautious, yeah. Tell us about it. Thank you very much. So anybody who has ever worked with me, anybody who has ever listened to podcasts on LPs will know that my probably my biggest number one bugbear is LPs in subarachnoid hemorrhages, closely followed by D-dimers in pulmonary embolisms. Now, I'm not saying that the role of lumbar punctures and D-dimers has gone out of fashion. 
there is a time and a place for these investigations but we have to make sure we do them in the right patients. And I'm going to talk to you now about a paper that I read, which is really interesting. Bit of background on this, first of all. So in ED, when we're on call, when the acute admissions unit, we see huge numbers of headaches. And I find it really challenging to identify which of those headaches have got a serious cause and a non-serious cause. And I think the thing that we're all really, really worried about, missing that subarachnoid hemorrhage. Now, when I first started practicing medicine, I'd love to say four years ago, but it was actually 16 years ago, everybody who had a headache had a CT head closely followed by a lumbar puncture to rule out a subarachnoid hemorrhage. And to be honest, I never really questioned this practice until I became a registrar when it was me who was expected to do all of these lumbar punctures. Don't get me wrong, I don't mind doing lumbar punctures. I quite like the skill of doing a lumbar puncture. I'd even say they're actually quite good at them. However, when you're starting to do four or five every post-take, you really have to question, should we be doing these lumbar punctures? Lumbar punctures are not without risks. They can cause post-traumatic headache. They can cause numbness around the area, bruising, bleeding. So they do have their own risks. So I'm going to talk to you about a patient. She's 43. She's got a headache. This headache came on while she was walking to the shops. Sudden onset of headache was the worst headache that she's ever remembered having in the last few years. She gets headaches pretty much every day, to be honest. Always just a bit niggly, a bit of a tight band around her head, but this felt particularly bad. She comes to the emergency department and describes this headache. The headache that she had started 14 hours ago. What do you do? So I think, uh, well, should, should I take this, John? I D-dimer. Think? Yeah, yeah, I was about to say D-dimer. <laughs> yeah, brilliant. So. Do it, don't do a D-dimer. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, sorry. Not helpful, not helpful. Um, I think, yeah, Amy, I think absolutely right. Um, this is your classic patient, isn't it, coming through the door. So um, I think with subarachnoid patients, I think history taking is really the key, key thing and getting a bit of the detail. Yeah, absolutely. And what I don't want to do in this situation is miss a diagnosis, but I also don't want to over-investigate. And I think what you mentioned there is the key thing is history taking. Now, I say this probably every single day. Osler said, listen to your patients. They are telling you the diagnosis. And actually, as physicians, we really need to practice the art of taking a history. Because if you take a good history, you can make an accurate diagnosis. And actually, a lot of the patients that we see and the investigations are there to confirm or refute diagnoses. So what I've seen happen, patient comes in and there's a headache. They're being triaged, headache straight through the scanner. Now, this led me to this paper. Is an LP required to rule out an atraumatic subarachnoid hemorrhage in ED with a headache? And this is in people who've had a normal CT done more than six hours after the symptom onset. Now, what's really interesting is there are lots of papers out there that look at the usage of CT head in diagnosis of subarachnoid hemorrhage. And there is a 100% sensitivity pickup rate of a subarachnoid hemorrhage if that CT is done within six hours of that headache onset. Now, the problem is, and the grey area, is after six hours, what do you do? Do you do the CT head? Do you do the lumbar puncture? And that's what this paper went to look at. Now, it was actually 
reviewed existing evidence and they looked at four studies. One was a cohort study, a retrospective study. There were two prospective cohort studies and one case control studies. Subarachnoid hemorrhage is a tricky diagnosis to make. We know that in the majority of patients, it's due to a sudden rupture of an aneurysm of the cerebral arteries. In about 15% of patients, it's due to a very small bleed without an aneurysm. Early identification is vital for treatment because if you don't treat these patients appropriately, mortality and mobility is exceptionally high. So rapid and accurate diagnoses is really, really important. Your patient comes in, they've had a serious headache. It's the worst headache they've ever had. It's maximum onset within one hour. They may have lost consciousness. They may not have lost consciousness. They may have some focal neurology. They might not have focal neurology. But somewhere in the back of your mind, you think subarachnoid hemorrhage. You do a CT head. It's within six hours. That CT head does not show a bleed. You can be reasonably confident from the previous studies. That's great. Discharge home. However, what about if it's seven hours, eight hours, nine hours? Where do we go from there? It's a very, very grey area. And it's one which has probably caused me more discussion than any other presenting complaint and investigation closely followed by that good old D-dimer. Okay, so I'm now going to briefly talk you very briefly through those four papers. Now, paper one by Perry et al. He's the, also the author and the developer of the Ottawa subarachnoid score, said that if you've got a negative CT and a negative lumbar puncture, and you're over the age of 15, you can rule out subarachnoid hemorrhage. It was a very small number. There were only 592 patients. They all had normal neurology, which was interesting. However, what happened is 61 of them had a subarachnoid hemorrhage of those 592. 55 were diagnosed by CT. Six were diagnosed by LP. But there were 175 false positive LPs. So 175 people had a lumbar puncture that was not required, didn't show any subarachnoid hemorrhage. They all went on to have a CT angiogram. No aneurysm was identified in any of those 175 people. You have to question the six people that were diagnosed by lumbar puncture what was the history taking like? What was the examination like? And unfortunately, the paper doesn't really go into that much detail. Mm. But what that does show is we're doing a huge amount of lumbar punctures. 175 full positive lumbar punctures is a lot. The rest of the papers really looked at the benefits of CT. And they said that if you do a CT scan within six hours, fantastic, 100% sensitivity, you can rule out a subarachnoid hemorrhage. The other papers... However, then said, if you do it after six hours, the sensitivity drops to 90%. So there is that real gray area of that 10% of people who actually, do we LP them or not? And that's, I think, one of the hardest questions in medicine to answer for me. Because even after I've done so much research, I've been working as an acute physician, I still don't know the answer. Is CT alone enough to rule out a subarachnoid hemorrhage without doing that lumbar puncture. So before I go on to give my thoughts, what do you guys think? I think a lot of it is down to a, um, a doctor-patient choice, as in um, we, we've all got our biases and what we think should happen, and so have the patients often, and having trying to have a reasonable conversation with them about the, the risks and benefits. And 
using percentages as much as we know them about you know how good a CTU is and how much extra the LP gives um, and trying to come up with a shared decision between us. Um, Barney, I think you've nicked the hail on the head. And this is what the paper concluded, that actually it's all down to shared decision making. The paper did not give a clear conclusion. They could not say that the benefits of the LP outweighed the risks of the LP. They couldn't say that CT was enough in the diagnosis of a subarachnoid hemorrhage. And they were very clear that it was all down to history taking. The pre-test risks of, a, of having that subarachnoid hemorrhage. If you're doing an LP to rule out a subarachnoid hemorrhage and a patient is had a headache for six weeks, you're clearly not doing the lumbar punctures in the correct group of people. The decision to do an LP or not is very subjective. Now, they did give a really interesting statistic. In the USA, 4 million people present to their emergency department each year with a headache. 1% turn out to have a subarachnoid hemorrhage. The pretest probability of any, of any of those having an SAH was 3%. And they say that actually an LP is good when it's used in the right people, but it's not being used in the right people. And I think that is my biggest bugwear. We are LPing the wrong people. If we take a history, we think they're a high risk. They've got all the red flags. The CT is negative. It's after six hours. An LP may be appropriate. The key take message of this paper was all about shared decision making. If you've got a patient, you sit down, you take them the data, you have a conversation, you give them risks and the benefits of the LP, and you make that decision together. I think that's the way forward. What I often see is people telling patients they have to have an LP. And that's my biggest challenge. Actually, let's involve the patient with that decision making. And I think that is really the key take home message is involve the patient in that decision making. And actually, we still don't have enough research out there looking at that grey area. And there are still no guidelines in the UK that actually look at LPs and subarachnoid hemorrhages. Wow. So really? watch the space. Sounds like you could write them, Amy. Yeah, Amy, I was <laughs> about to say, this is it. This is your calling in life, surely. <laughs> Oh, that's brilliant, Amy. Thank you so much. That's really, really useful to hear. And yeah, you've obviously have a lot of experience in this area. So it's great to hear it from you. Uh, we are going to come back to you later on in the episode with um, some CT scanning related research. And then also, I think I'm going to tee up a separate episode where you and Barney go head to head on the utility of a D-dimer. Barney, <laughs> oh, yes, please. Barney bloody <laughs> loves D-dimers. I bloody uh, love D-dimers. Really Do does. you? Yeah, yeah. Don't, Do you? <laughs> separate episode. Don't let the fireworks go now. Before then, though, we have some exciting news, uh, exciting vaccine news, actually. Um, Barney, I think you're going to share with us, except I don't think it's the vaccine that we're all talking about. Absolutely right, John. Look, I mean, in the age of COVID, we have somehow got used to this idea that effective vaccines can be whipped up in a matter of months. It therefore seems almost bizarre that for certain diseases, they have been searching for a vaccine for decades. Um, and these include diseases such as HIV, TB, and malaria. Now, if you listen to our latest HIV episode, which was brilliant, by the way, I wasn't on it. So it was, it was, it was really good. Minimal waffle, amazing. <laughs> um, if you listen to it, you would have heard that there is some cautious optimism about a future HIV vaccine. However, a TB vaccine beyond the BCG seems light years away, and malaria seems not far behind that. Okay, so you're going to chat to us about malaria vaccine. I think I've heard about previous iterations of this. Have they been any good so far? 
I mean, so far, the best has been a vaccine with an efficacy of 56% in children and just 36% in adults. This is way below the WHO aim of 75%. A quick reminder to the listeners that efficacy is how well a drug works in controlled settings as found in phase two trials and effectiveness is how it works in real world conditions as found in larger phase three trials. So this was a double blind, randomized, controlled phase 2b trial published in The Lancet. And they split 450 Burkina Faso children, and these are aged 5 to 17 months, so really young, into three groups. Low dose vaccine, higher dose vaccine, and a control group given a rabies vaccine. They received three doses over a year with a booster after this. Primary outcome was a number of cases of falciparum malaria, that's the bad one, by the way, <laughs> okay, for those who don't know, over six months and then 12 months. And what did the results show? No one got yeah, rabies? Look, no, no one got rabies. They didn't even mention that in the article. I was looking for that. I think, see, anyway, um, the results were very promising. There was no significant difference between the two doses of malaria vaccine, which was good, with 34% and 27% of children getting malaria respectively. Wow, wait, so a third of children who had the vaccine actually still got malaria? They did indeed. But you have to compare this to the control group where 72% had falciparum malaria over six months. That's nearly three quarters of children aged around one year getting malaria in this highly endemic area, despite the usual precautions, including mosquito nets. The overall efficacy of the higher dose vaccine was 77%, which just meets the WHO criteria. Apparently, this vaccine is also cheaper and easier to produce than others, lending itself to mass vaccination programs. So the long wait for an effective malaria vaccine may just be coming to an end. But of course, we need some phase three trials, including adults, before you, uh, you go off and get your jab instead of taking gastritis-induced doxycycline or psychosis-inducing larium as prophylaxis before your next jaunt to Africa. Yeah, that sounds really promising, Barney. And I mean, that sounds like it could be a real game changer for such a fatal disease in sub-Saharan Africa. Really, really exciting. I am going to move us on to some COVID, if that's all right. Back to the COVID zone. Of course it is. Go on, John. Now you probably thought you'd never have to remember how to spell tocilizumab again, right? Or maybe that bilateral infiltrates could go back to being heart failure and IV furizamide. And did you think you'd finally be off a COVID rotor and have some annual leave approved? John, only way to get some decent leave is shared paternal leave. (laughs) (laughs) Amy, can you confirm that? (laughs) Uh, Well, I have to say, a lot of people have said um, getting pregnant is a very drastic measure to having a year (laughs) off work. (laughs) But it works, but it works. But it works, exactly. (laughs) A drastic measure, but you've just had a um, swimming, a singing lesson, so that sounds very appealing. Uh, (laughs) You haven't heard me sing. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, anyways, but sadly, I, sadly, cases are actually ticking up again in the UK as we're recording this, and many of our international listeners, listeners are probably in the thick of it at the moment. So we thought it would be helpful to bring some kind of big, heavy-hitting COVID papers to try and help you navigate the next few months. Good old COVID again. I mean, it's so important that we talk about it, but I thought, to be fair, that now it would all be microchips, it would have all been sorted. <laughs> yeah, well, unfortunately, Amy, the microchip only makes you permanently logged into Microsoft Teams. 
very unfortunate. <laughs> yeah, quite. <laughs> we are going to talk about the recovery trial again. And we call it here first on journal spotting is, well, not first, but it's the greatest UK contribution to medicine since Jon Snow took out his frustration on his local water pump. This team is churning out impressive results. And this month, we've got two big questions answered. Firstly, convalescent plasma. It doesn't really work. Recovery randomized 10,000 patients to either convalescent plasma or usual care and saw no difference in 28-day mortality between the two groups. This applies to all subgroups, and it makes no difference to how fast patients get discharged. John, so, I think I think the very first time we ever spoke about convalescent plasma in our very first COVID zone episode, you called this, and you're like, oh, this is never going to work. Um, so <laughs> I mean, why even bother doing the recovery trial? Why just not listen to John? I mean... <laughs> But you know when they're wheeling out therapies that were used in 1918 for the last like yeah. flu pandemic, it's probably not going to be the one that's going to work. <laughs> we should all be cancelling our appointments with NHS transplant to donate our plasma, and we should be giving them the red stuff instead. This is very sad times because it means that another potential therapy is out of the window. Yeah, that's true. But don't worry, because the next results will give us quite a lot to cheer about. Uh, we chatted about tocilizumab with the master of monoclonals, Dr. James Galloway, back in January. And I highly recommend you head back there for a masterclass in running clinical trials in a pandemic. But in the meantime, I'm going to share with you the Lancet publication for the tocilizumab arm of the recovery trial. So patients that entered into recovery for a different treatment arm could then be randomized again for tocilizumab within 21 days of entering the trial if they still had SATs less than 92 on room air and their CRP was over 75. Okay, so they were hypoxic and also hyperinflammatory a few days down the line from admission. Yeah, exactly. And tocilizumab uh, in this patient group lowered the risk of death at 28 days by 15% and reduced the risk of progression to intubation by 16%. So it's really interesting because prior to this, wasn't the evidence a little bit mixed as to whether this pretty expensive drug actually worked or not, John? Yeah, absolutely. And previous trials taken together actually show no benefit for tocilizumab when you meta-analyze them. But as the authors mentioned, I think a bit smugly, recovery contains four times the amount of data than all eight pre-existing trials combined. Think of it like all the other trials trying to find a needle in a haystack and recovery just decided to empty the barn of hay and get a huge magnet out to find the needle. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> okay, I think we need to gloss over that analogy. <laughs> I have others, but I'll leave them. Uh, so okay. they meta-analyzed all nine trials <laughs> in the manuscript. They've done a meta-analysis at the end, and they've shown a 14% reduction in 28-day mortality with tocilizumab. So unlike free food and junior doctor wellness, it looks like this IL-6 blocker is sticking around for the third wave. Yeah, that's brilliant. Thanks, John. It's great to have that data, isn't it? Because we've always seen it being used and actually having something at the recovery trial clearly showing it where it works is fantastic. Um, you want a bit of a COVID role, John? I think yeah, you don't want to carry on. Do you want to keep the COVID zone ticking over? I think you've you found us found out a bit more information about pregnant women. What, what what's that about? Yeah, I found this in JAMA Pediatrics, actually, which a journal I'm sure, Barney, that you as a responsible father read to your two children every night. <laughs> Mate, it's great bedtime reading for the kids. They have to fast asleep. <laughs> Got to get them journal spotting young. So this is a big prospective cohort study that investigated maternal and neonatal outcomes in pregnant women with COVID-19. They recruited about 700 pregnant women with COVID and then doubled the number of um, controls who were relatively well matched for other confounders. And they then followed them up to see what happened. 
John, is this um, is this UK or is this is this worldwide? Where, whereabouts was this? Yeah, this is worldwide and about eighteen different countries with a kind of mix of uh, high, low, and middle income countries. Um, there's absolutely loads in this paper, and um, some of it is kind of beyond me because a lot of it's kind of obstetrics and neonatal stuff. But kind of the headlines are that basically one point six percent of women with COVID um, died. This made them twenty two times more likely to die. Although the confidence intervals are really wide. From like two to 170, um, and as a caveat, it did appear that these deaths were concentrated in what authors described as less developed regions. So, the more it's kind of skews the mortality, but still, 1.6% mortalities is really high. Second, the symptoms seem to matter a lot as the risk of morbidity and mortality increased in the presence of any symptoms. Asymptomatic women with COVID basically have the same risk as non-COVID-19 women, except for their risk of preeclampsia. The third finding is that women with COVID were across the board at risk of worse maternal outcomes, in particular, preeclampsia, eclampsia, severe infection, and ITU admission. And then finally, the important thing was there was a much higher risk of neonatal complications, including preterm birth and severe neonatal morbidity index. So yeah, those were the kind of key findings that I thought were really interesting um, from that, what is quite a big paper. That's really kind of you, John, by the way, to, uh, to bring that up when Amy is... <laughs> I think it was 36 weeks pregnant. That's really lovely for you just to decide Yeah, I just wanted to clarify what stage of pregnancy were these women at? Because I had COVID and ended up in hospital. Oh, um, oh my gosh. Um, but I was 12 weeks pregnant. So I'm hoping that, you know, you'll be able to allay all my fears and tell me that everything's going to be absolutely oh. fine. <laughs> John, it's on you. It's on you. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, these, all these women were in the third trimester. Um, okay. You know, and um, yeah, gosh, I'm sorry to hear that. That sounds, I mean, you weren't in the trial, were you? Just in the. No, I wasn't. (laughs) That would be a journal spotting first, by the way, both on the episode and in the study. And in the trial. Oh, yeah. (laughs) So those are basically the headlines. And I think the practice changing point here is to really help conceptualize just how high the risk is of maternal morbidity and mortality. And we really need to be on the lookout for more complications, in particular, preeclampsia and eclampsia seem to be really key. That's great. And I think that follows on really nicely, actually, from the, um, the, the episode we did, gosh, about over a year ago about um, COVID in pregnancy. And that fits with the idea at the time that, you know, the, the main risk is in the third trimester. And that seems to be where um, the problems will lie. So thanks, John. That's really fantastic. And John, I think you've got one more practice changing the COVID zone article for the uh, COVID crusaders out there. Yeah, one more to go. So uh, we've all probably seen a lot of methylpred being used for patients with severe COVID pneumonitis, um, or if they're sort of hyperinflammatory. The logic behind this uh, is that methylpred penetrates the lungs better, and the pneumonitis kind of resembles ARDS, and we use high-dose methylpred for that. Is that right, Barney, roughly? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely right. Uh, methylpred was, has always been a go-to before, and I know some hospitals have continued to use it um, a lot during, during the pandemic. Yeah. So the, the trial data is interesting. There's a few observational trials, which are a little bit bigger, but in the kind of like chaos of the second wave, I don't think anyone's actually managed to do a good RCT, except for this, which is an Iranian study, which has about 86 patients. And they basically randomized hypoxic patients to either uh, two mg per kg of methylpred for 10 days or um, dexamethasone, um, so the recovery trial protocol. And the methylpred group did pretty well. Uh, they had a much lower need for ventilation, uh, 18.2% compared to 38.1%. And in terms of mortality, it was much lower in the methylpred group, 18% compared to 37 in the controls. 
But because of the small numbers, it didn't actually reach any statistical significance. So there's kind of a trend, but not quite there. Okay, so it's interesting. I mean, and there is possibly a signal that methylpred could be superior in severe COVID. Is that right? Yeah, and I think anecdotally, that's probably what a few respiratory physicians that I worked with would say. Um, this trial didn't actually look for like some of those other complications that you might get with someone that gets high dose methylpred. So, you know, superimposed bacterial infections and those sorts of things. Um, but yeah, there's a signal here that it could work. And hopefully someone, I haven't actually looked, but hopefully there's a bigger randomized control trial being done. Um, and we could see a change in guidelines. It would be really interesting to know if guidelines change based on this and the observational data. I'm not sure it will, but yeah. I think, yeah, I very much imagine this isn't enough at the moment, but you know, as you say, there's probably some more, more studies out there going on. So, okay, John, thank you very much for getting stuck into the COVID zone literature for us. Uh, plenty there for people to take away. Amy, I hear you've uh, gone and fished out a surgical article for us and i um, curious to hear what that's all about. Absolutely. And you'll be both be pleased to know that I haven't got 12 pages of handwritten notes on this particular <laughs> journal article. Now, this is a really interesting paper. This is looking at the risk of hematological malignancies after um, perioperative CT of mm. the abdomen and pelvis. Um, and this is for people who had their CTs either seven days before they had appendicectomy for the diagnosis of an appendic appendicitis or up to seven days post appendicectomy looking for problems post-surgical. I really like this type of paper that actually focuses on investigations and the risk of over-investigation. I probably under-investigate I know that I don't probably do as many investigations as I probably should um, because I often wonder what are the risks of the investigations? Do we really understand the sensitivity and specificity of those tests that we're doing, such as D-dimers? And do we understand so, what specificity and sensitivity are? That's another exactly. barrier. <laughs> Can we still calculate it like we learned for MRCP part two? Um and I think it's so important that if we're going to be requesting investigations such as lumbar punctures, CTs that are risky for our patients, we really need to understand why we're doing them. Um, and is it actually going to change our management plan? Now, this paper was done in South Korea. It was a huge study. It looked at nearly a million people. So it's definitely got a very good representative sample. And they collected data between the years of 2005 and 2015. So it was a 10-year study looking yeah, at a amazing. million people. It's huge. I mean, it was, you know, it's very rare that you actually get studies in that size. So I think from that, you can actually infer some good sort of practice changing points. So out of those million people, 200,000 were taken out. They didn't look at the patients who had CTs if they had risk factors for cancer, because that could obviously skew the data. And they also took out people who'd had CTs in the past, um, people who didn't want to be involved in the study, you know, the usual type of confounding factors they tried to um, sort of get rid of. So interestingly, the study population was 52% was men and the median age is 28. Now, this paper actually looked at people, children from zero all the way up to 60, but the median age is 28. Now, the key thing here is we know that red bone marrow is very radiosensitive. 
more than 10% of red bone marrow is actually covered in a CT abdo pelvis. And it's that red bone marrow, that radiosensitive red bone marrow, that has the risk of developing malignancy. Now, the primary outcome of this paper was looking at hematological malignancies involving that red bone marrow, lymphomas, leukemias, multiple myeloma, myelodysplasia, and the secondary outcomes were the abdominal pelvic organ cancers, digestive organs, the genitalia, urinary tract. But the primary outcome is where it gets interesting. They showed that hematological malignancies occurred more frequently in CT-exposed patients versus non-CT-exposed patients, but only in the age range of 0 to 15. So over the age of 15, there was no difference in developing hematological malignancies, which goes to show it's really, yeah. And that's probably because that red bone marrow is so radiosensitive in children compared to adults when we are much more developed. And the most common type of malignancy was a myeloid leukemia. So the multiple myelomas and lymphomas were a lot further on down the line. What I found really interesting as well was that generally in the population of patients who came in with acute abdomen in South Korea in 2005, 10% had CTs. In 2015, what percentage of patients do you think had CTs looking at their <laughs> acute abdomen? Oh, 80, only, only 80%. Only high. <laughs> it's going to go massive. Not, not quite that high. It's 46%. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Of, all, of the, all abdominal pain A&E presentations? Yes. Oh, okay. Yeah. Wow. Well, that's that's that, high. Yeah, that's crazy. And it's really interesting because I've actually seen that shift as well. You know, we get huge amounts of acute abdomens in acute medicine. And years ago, you'd, you know, the surgeon would come and they'd palpate the abdomen. But now they will palpate the abdomen usually after you've done that CT and they will ask for a CT. Yeah. Um, and it's easier to get a CT than it is an ultrasound scan, I often find as well. It's easier to get a CT than a surgical review, I think you find, Amy. That's the. Um... <laughs> Potentially, yeah. And, you know, sometimes you request a CT and within an hour you've got that CT done. Um, and again, that begs the question, are we over-investigating because it's easier when we're on call? You know, yeah. are we not doing the best thing for the patient because actually it can be sometimes challenging to get that surgical opinion quite quickly when we can get a CT scan sometimes within 30 minutes to an hour? So that's interesting. And but do you think um, has this study shown that actually in the older age range it's it's safe to get CT abdomen pelvises? So they conclude that with the modern CT scanners, that actually our radiation exposure is probably less than it was 10, 15, 20 years ago. And it has shown that CT exposure does increase your risk of leukemia but only in children. And they go on to say that actually, if you've got an acute abdomen and you need a CT scan, that CT scan should be done if it's medically necessary. However, take your history examination. You don't think it's an acute abdomen, that judicious use of CT scans should be practiced because the problem is the study only had a 10-year follow-up. So they don't know what the 15, 20, 30 year follow up of that exposure to that CT scan would be. 
So that's a limit of the study is that that's it only looks at a point. very short term follow up. And it'd be interesting to see in the future if that risk is higher. I think that's really important. I think um, I'm not sure where, where from reading something a while ago that the idea was that often these cancers come up after about 20 years. That's kind of exactly. usually what has been banded around in my head. Um, so there we go. So I think that's, uh, that's, that's a really interesting point. Thanks for that, Amy. That's fantastic. Yeah. I think it's really ties in nicely to the LP one because it again takes us back to that history examination and not doing unnecessary investigations. Wonderful, yeah. Amy. Thank you so much. That uh, two brilliant articles and really uh, and really interesting points and a lot to think about there. Thank you. We're going to go to well, we're going to go from over investigation to over burdensome treatment. I think Barney. A nice segue, John. That was off the cuff as well. That was <laughs> that was great. <laughs> Next up on my uh, infectious diseases hot list is TB treatment. As I'm sure most of our listeners know, treatment of TB is long. For active TB, the minimum duration is six months, increasing to 12 months for the likes of cerebral TB. The holy grail of tuberculosis treatment is, quite simply, finding something which allows a shorter course with fewer side effects and good effectiveness. This has proven exceptionally difficult over the decades that it's been tried. So, rifampicin is the cornerstone of most TB treatment regimes worldwide. It's the, it's the best we have at killing off mycobacterium. And we know the longer mycobacterium are exposed to it, the better it works. Rifapentine is something you may not have heard of, which is, and this is a derivative of rifampicin, which has a longer half-life. Therefore, the theory is that it could be more effective. But every medical student wants to know, Barney, does it still turn the urine orange? That is a very good question. and I don't have the answer to it. I wish I knew. Um, I don't know. Probably. Really? This study is an open label phase three randomized control non-inferiority trial published in the New England Journal of Medicine. And it compared the usual six month TB treatment, which included rifampicin, isoniazid, pyrazinamide, and ethambutol in group one. To group two, where they substituted rifapentine for rifampicin over four months. And in group three, with rifapentine, but instead of ethambutol, they used moxifloxacin again for four months. Okay, nice. Uh, Those are the three different regimens. So what did the results show? We're pleased to hear that you can completely forget about group two, which is where they just substituted rifampicin for rifapentine, because that was shown to be inferior in terms of TB-free survival at 12 months. If I know anything about modern TB at the moment, it's that moxifloxacin is bloody great. <laughs> is that what you're about to tell us? Let's shove it in everything. Now, I'll go through it, actually. I mean, let's compare the other two. So there was no significant difference between them with regards to TB-free survival at 12 months or safety outcomes. Essentially, the four-month regime was non-inferior. But they've already done trials previously where they've substituted um, ethanputol for just moxifloxacin, they couldn't reduce the length of the regime with that, John. So moxifloxacin is really useful, but isn't the whole answer. Nice. Okay. Well, regardless, this sounds like pretty big news for in the world of TB. Yeah, well, I think it is, John. But there are, of course, a few factors holding it back. So even though it was a very well-designed study, it was open label out of necessity, as the different drugs need to be taken at different times. Also, to use a four-month regime requires rapid isoniazid and moxifloxacin resistance testing. Um, this currently takes about six weeks in most places because you have to wait for the cultures. The moxifloxacin is also taken in addition to the rifapentine and as isoniazid for the second two months 
So there is a slightly higher pill burden there as well. And we do know that fluoroquinolones do have quite a lot of issues. When I was, uh, I did, I did quite a bit of uh, TB in South Africa when I was there, and they actually had treatment um, access to the rapid test for INH and moxifloxacin resistance uh, within two weeks. So the technology is there mm-hmm. and is in certain quite endemic settings. So. Yeah, actually, I also say that the technology is there; it just needs to be invested in. That said, I suspect this will catch on, and we will hopefully open the door to more studies and more methods of reducing TB treatment duration. I think that's a really interesting paper. So from the holy grail of TB treatment to the holy grail of medicine, nurses. Absolutely. So, John, it's been a year that has reminded us of the value of the National Health Service. But I think one of the key things in the NHS is nurses. And I know for a fact that nurses are really actually what run the National Health Service. They are what keep it going. And now it looks like you found some evidence to back this up. Yeah, hopefully uh, we're going to enter the rather contentious issue of nurse to patient ratios. Um, This is a study in The Lancet, which really should be on the desk of any politician considering inadequate pay rises for nurses. It was conducted in Queensland, Australia, where they implemented a minimum nurse to patient ratio in 27 hospitals. And they prospectively compared them to 28 other hospitals in the region that did not have the policy implemented. Uh, No surprise that this study is taking place in the revered healthcare service of our friends down under. To a beleaguered NHS nurse working in Australia must sound pretty pleasant, if not for the distance it puts between them and Matt Hancock. Okay, okay, John, before you get too political again, um, what are these ratios all about? Well, okay, fine. So the minimum nurse to patient ratio is a pretty hot patient safety debate. The policy mandated an average ratio of one nurse to four patients in hours and no lower than one to seven out of hours. The study then looked at individual patient data of 400,000 patients from all the hospitals to compare the outcomes. They found that in the intervention hospitals, there was an 11% reduction in 30-day mortality when compared to their pre-intervention baseline two years earlier. No such decrease was seen in the control hospitals where they didn't have the policy. And intervention hospitals also had a slightly shorter length of stay and better readmission rates. So a better nurse to patient ratio was associated with a drop in mortality. Yeah. And not only that, but it saves money. So they estimated that the costs saved because of the reduced length of stay and readmissions were more than twice the costs of the additional staffing needed to comply with the policy. That's pretty incredible because over the last 18 months, I've been working with nursing ratios of one nurse to 16 patients, sometimes even more. And it's not uncommon for us to have no nurses um, sometimes in some of our areas. Um, And we end up doing some. Yeah. And I think that's a combination of many things, Um, a combination of COVID in general, exhaustion, burnout. But also, I don't think we value our nursing staff enough in the UK. Mm. And the pitiful pay rises that have been offered to them is an embarrassment, to be honest. And on that note, do you think we're going to get these ratios in the UK? Yeah, so it has been looked into. Um, NICE were looking into it in like 2014-15 and then it got shelved. They have said that a ratio of eight patients per nurse threatens patient safety. So um, the wards you're working on, uh, you know, are deemed to be twice that. Um, A study in 2019 in the UK actually showed that one in four wards ran at this ratio, one to eight in the UK. Um, And this study in Australia had ratios of six patients per nurse at baseline 
And then after the intervention, they got to 4.36 patients per nurse. So yeah, I mean, we're, we're, we are absolutely nowhere near that. Now, the study like does have some limitations. Uh, the hospitals were not randomly assigned. They were chosen by the government. There are some issues with incomplete data. Um, but like on the whole, this is pretty valid evidence of, you know, improving staffing levels for nurses and ratios. It gets you better outcomes. And just to clarify, were these wards that they were look, working on, were they like the general medical, general surgical wards? Exactly. Yeah. General medical and general surgical wards. Yeah, that's that's right. It, reading around it a little bit, there's a lot of um, commentary which is saying, you know, we haven't really had much evidence for people have tried to give evidence for nursing to patient ratios, improving patient outcomes. We don't really have it yet. And I think this is like a really, really impressive first attempt at doing that. So hopefully it's going to change the narrative and, you know, hopefully we'll we'll start to see um, a policy like that here. And anecdotally, you know that when you're working on a ward where there are more nurses, when nurses can join you on ward rounds, when they can join you for the handovers and they can join you for a cup of coffee, you know, just to sort of break down those barriers, you know that things work much more smoothly and that helps for better patient care, but also morale as well on the wards. Yeah. Is that joining you for some Tina Turner dancing as well, Amy? Abs- do you know, there we, absolutely. We had a lot of nurses joining for the Tina Turner dancing. Oh, great. Oh, my gosh. I might do squeeze in a little short one here. Um, and I'm going to start with a question. So, um, guys, how might your position affect your hemoglobin count? Position? What do you mean? <laughs> <laughs> Listen, you can't see the raised eyebrows. Um, that's great. Okay. Well, what, okay. I, I'll probably just crack on, you know what? <laughs> with time. I don't want to, you know. Okay, look, this was a, a small study published in the Journal of Hospital Medicine, and it investigated the idea that when we stand up, our hemoglobin increases, and when we lie down, it decreases. As the plasma pools in the vascular beds, causing peripheral hemodilution. The authors wanted to know whether this difference between lying and sitting could really actually be clinically significant. So 35 patients had to lie down for six hours, blood taken, sat up for one hour, and blood repeated. Overall, four patients had no change or a slight decrease in the hemoglobin. The rest all had an increase in hemoglobin with a significant median rise of 0.6 grams per deciliter, that's uh, six grams per liter in new money. Nearly a third of patients had a rise of more than one gram per deciliter. So just to put it in context, imagine a patient with an HP of 7.6 or 76, which drops to 6.6. Gets you thinking, doesn't it? It gets me thinking I'm not going to ask the patient to stand up when I do a blood test. <laughs> This is sitting. This was lying to sitting. So they were they weren't they weren't standing. Oh, up. sorry. Which in you know in, in hospital that's it. Patients are either yeah lying down or sitting up, aren't they? And they, they alternate between them. And a, a change of one gram is the sort of territory which could alter a patient's treatment, prompt further investigation, and send waves of panic through the new F one who has just been asked to check the bloods of a patient who has been lying down all night long. You know what? I think this will change my practice enough that I am now aware that changes in positioning can have significant effects on the hemoglobin account. I think we actually should be quite familiar with this, especially if we are if we have a patient who we're considering transfusing or potentially further investigations for bleeds. Mm. Do you yeah. want to change your practice, guys? John looks unconvinced. 
<laughs> it's a real hand. I mean, like 30 patients. I don't know. I was going to say it's a bit it's a bit too small for me. Yeah. Um yeah. the 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 number of patients, but I will certainly think about it, but it yeah. may not change my practice straight away. No, I think that's fair. I think there's something to think about. I think it's interesting. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> Just another more ammunition for your riveting post egg ward round, Bonnie. Yes. yes um, exactly. <laughs> okay, so moving on. Uh, Amy, I think I know the answer to this question, given what you've told us about how much you do in your spare time. But are you a morning <laughs> lark or a night owl? <laughs> I don't think I'm what I think I'm just a both. 20 hour day person. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you're both. Um, yeah, yeah, I think I think at the moment I'm better in the evenings. Okay. Um, but normally I quite like to get up in the morning. But then with lots of children, they get you up at stupid o'clock anyway. Yeah. That wasn't a confounding factor they considered in this study, but it's worth, yeah. This, oh, really? the, ah. the reason why I ask is, it basically, it seems like the um, whether you're a morning lark or a night owl does actually seem to matter in terms of your risk of certain mental health conditions. So in this particular paper, um, depression, uh, there's quite a lot of observational data that shows that um, night owls are actually twice as likely to have poor mental health compared to morning larks. But the trouble is that because mood disorders can themselves disrupt sleep, the studies are always confounded. Um, so it's, it's quite tricky to actually tease out the sort of cause and effect. Now, this study uses Mendelian randomization to try and get around this. And the second time you've managed to name drop your, your best buddy Mendel, John. Yeah, I, these the Mendelian randomization studies are really, really cool. And there are more and more of these being published because we have more and more um, genetic biobank data. So this is a study with data from 150,000 individuals from the UK Biobank and from 23andMe. Um, and we actually know that there are 340 common genetic variants that influence a person's chronotype. Um, and that basically explains up to 12 to 40% of our sleep timing preference. So because there's a 50-50 chance of getting these genes at birth and they can't be altered in your lifetime, it makes two groups that are sort of randomized at birth and it completely eliminates the potential for confounders um, because your, your, you know, your genes aren't changed. So the authors take these two groups and then they ask the question, do these genetic variants, which predispose people to be early risers, give people a lower risk of depression? And do we have an answer? Yeah, so I wouldn't be presenting the paper if the answer wasn't <laughs> yes, actually. Yeah, so each one hour earlier sleep midpoint, that's the halfway point between bedtime and wake time, which you can imagine if you go to bed earlier is earlier, regardless of what time you get up, corresponded with a 23% lower risk of major depressive disorders. So that is actually quite an incredible effect. So what does that actually mean in practice, though? Yeah. So if you think about it, someone who normally goes to bed at, say, 1am, if they go to bed at midnight instead, but they sleep the same duration, this study is suggesting that it could, in theory, cut their risk of depression by 23%. The author suggests that like, this could be related to greater light exposure during the day, so leading to kind of hormonal cascade that might influence mood, or maybe that like uh, society is basically stacked against you if you get up late. You know, you're constantly feeling like you're catching up, so that sort of induces stress. Um, it is important to emphasize that the, these Mendelian randomization studies are definitely not conclusive evidence. They probably sit somewhere between like good observational data and randomized controlled trials. So the authors do say, you know, we still need large randomized trials, but it does strongly suggest that sleep timing has some sort of impact on depression risk. 
And, you know, I do think it's important that we could be discussing with patients, in particular those at high risk of depression, um, that, you know, sleep hygiene and getting up early in the morning could actually make a difference. So, John, not only have you uh, scared poor Amy Whitness because of your <laughs> the risks of COVID and pregnancy, she's not also going to be sleeping very much for the next year, and you're probably... Um, I've got no this. hope. <laughs> I'm but... so sorry. All right, guys, I'm going to take us away from the lows of sleepless depressions, and um, I have a relatively relevant, irrelevant article for you today. It's the first time I've had one for a while. Journal Junkies, you can thank a certain Dr. Will Thompson for finding this golden article. It promises to blow your minds and will change the way you look at ventilation and bums forever. Right. It is well known. <laughs> lots of head shaking listeners. You can't see us. I don't know where this is going. <laughs> okay. Um, excuse the terrible puns. Anyway, it is well known that our colons have a great blood supply and that some animals, including the freshwater loach, nonetheless, absorb oxygen via their gut. This led to a Dr. Takibi performing a series of investigations in Japan and the USA published in MED into whether mammals could do the same. You bet your bottom dollar they can. He oh. proved... <laughs> He proved in mice, rats, and pigs that by using either oxygen alone or oxygen dissolved in a special liquid and given anally, he can not only improve the oxygenation in these animals, but also increase survival when those animals were placed into respiratory failure. Cruel, yes, but quite amazing and fascinating nonetheless. Now, it could be suggested that this might prove another route for the outdated mouth-to-mouth (laughs) manoeuvre. I mean, I would strongly encourage everybody who's listening to write to the Research Council about this and suggest it, because I think this could be groundbreaking, way forward, way of getting over the outdated mouth-to-mouth. Nobody wants to do mouth-to-mouth anymore, so this is just an alternative route. I mean, you know. (laughs) Uh, What would would it be called, though? What would you call it? Oh, gosh. Um, MOA. (laughs) MOA. Why do you keep saying, why did you say anal oxygen? Isn't it rectal? <laughs> like, you they never say, it, they call it anal, anal enema. You're putting up, yeah, you're putting up the anus, through the anus. It's yeah, the rectum, it's very, I <laughs> Okay, but more realistically, I mean, it is feasible that in severe and refractory hypoxic patients, such as caused by COVID, this method could be useful in rare cases, or so the authors think. But um, I do suspect we'll probably need some human studies before we start, you know, enforcing this. Yeah, I mean, we do crazier things. We put enormous pipes in people's veins and suck blood out of them into ECMO machines. So yeah, you you know what? You're absolutely right. That is a crazier thing to we do. We do, so do crazier things. Um, <laughs> yeah. Barney, I've already actually put your name down for the feasibility studies. So <laughs> Thanks for sharing that. And I can't believe you opened with malaria vaccines saving children in Burkina Faso instead of this. I know, this is it. This is the this is the stuff, mate. This is what yeah. it's all about. Are you looking for a PhD? <laughs> I am, I am, I absolutely am. There we go. Scrap from respiratory and cough, which is what I'm about to start. The Hyrens anal oxygenator. <laughs> Anyways. Folks, that is all we've got time for this month. It's been action-packed. And uh, before we sign off, a huge thank you to Amy for joining us uh, for this roundup. Uh, We normally like to end the show by sharing what we thought was our most practice-changing point for the evening. Uh, So any thoughts? Amy, do you want to um, go first? 
would you like me to sing this? Or... Yeah. Oh, yes. <laughs> no, 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 no. I'll cue the background music. <laughs> okay, so a um, few things that, unfortunately, the most recent thing that you've often heard is the one that sticks in your brain. So now I'm just going to be thinking about how to utilise anal oxygen. Um, You're going to be looking at those um, nasal cannulas, you know, tubing, as, and then your patient is hypoxic, being like, oh, what did you yeah, <laughs> Maybe we should try nasal, you know, anal CPAP. You never know. Anyway, um, I what I really like is the article that looked at nursing ratios as well. Um, so although not necessarily practice changing in a sense, actually, I think it really highlighted beautifully how important nurses are and actually how undervalued I think they are in the NHS. Um, and I think that's something that I'll definitely take away. And also, I think it was really interesting um, to hear about the malaria vaccine and it was really impressive actually that with the vaccine that the, the reduced number of people children who got malaria particularly the nasty falciparum malaria is quite significant so hopefully that in the future we'll start to see more work on that that'd be really good nice Great, thanks barney um, I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna suck up to our super podcast co-host guest co-host and say I, I love the lumberbug puncture talk. I think that's really interesting. Thank you, Amy. I think it's um I think you'll give people a lot of confidence in knowing that the CT within six hours is really good news, and we can avoid most lump punctures in those cases unless you're thinking of an alternative diagnosis. And um, giving giving people a bit of a bit of confidence and a bit of something to think about when the CT is over six hours. So brilliant, mm -hmm. lovely. And mine, I think, is going to be the TB treatment. I think four months of TB treatment could be, um, you know, two months less of treatment could be make a real difference to treatment programs all around the world. So I think that's really exciting. Um, I'd also like to um, thank you for showcasing that beautiful COVID and pregnancy um, paper because <laughs> now the problem is now I'm not going to sleep which means that my chances of depression are going to be higher um, and um, yeah so, <laughs> so thank you very much <laughs> to Journal Spotting with your host Dr. Barnaby Hirons, Dr. Jonathan Hudson and guest host Dr. Amy Burridge. Information on today's show can be found on our website journalspotting.com, on Twitter at Journal Spotting, Facebook or Instagram. Special thanks goes out to our logo lady Natalia, graphics man Costa and promotion stars Isabel and Abby. If you've liked today's podcast, subscribe and leave a review on Apple. If you have any feedback or questions, get in touch via our webpage, our email journalspotting at gmail.com or tweet us. Disclaimer time, this podcast is for educational use only. The views expressed are opinions based on our experience, experience of our guests, and the evidence we read. We are not affiliated to any particular institution. By listening to this podcast, you agree not to use the information we share to make decisions on how to treat your patients or yourselves. <laughs>